0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Welcome to FT Politics, a regular discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne after one of the most turbulent political years in living memory, Westminster has thankfully taken a break over Christmas, and so are we. Brexit is shuffling towards completion, but with not much else on the agenda right now, it seems an opportune moment to look back with a bit of perspective. And to do just that, I'm joined by a very special guest this week, Lionel Barber, who I'm sure listeners know is editor of the FT. He joined the paper in 1985 and has served variously as our Washington correspondent, Brussels Bureau Chief, news editor, and for the last 14 years editor. He's overseen the FT's transformation from a print product to primarily a digital organ, and he is stepping down at the beginning of January. So I thought it would be good to sit down with Lionel and look back over British politics from his time at the FT. Lionel, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for the invitation, Seb. So we're sitting here a week after Boris Johnson's election victory, which was quite a surprise for everyone, the sheer scale of that majority. When you saw the exit poll come in, what were your immediate thoughts?
2: Thumping win. I thought he would win. The Conservatives would beat Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. They had a flawed candidate. And as we said in our editorial, a very flawed Policy program, I thought maybe 40 or 50. So 80 was above my expectations and maybe above their expectations in some quarters.
1: I think that's absolutely true. That even inside the Conservative campaign, the day before, they were saying, oh, well, a majority of one is still a victory. So there was a lot of nervousness about that. But Boris Johnson. Is a quite curious character as Prime Minister and one that typically the FT has always supported pro-business candidates. But Boris Johnson proves something of an interesting question for us because he is more pro-business than Jeremy Corbyn, but his Brexit policy still leaves a lot of unanswered questions and potentially a lot of economic
2: disruption too. Well, I've known Boris Johnson since 1992 when I first met him, actually in Lisbon, at the summit in the summer. And I was told that you see that young man with longish blonde hair, he's going to be your biggest competitive threat in Brussels. And I thought, "Mm, man to watch. Well, he's done very well, hasn't he? He's reached higher office, well beyond journalism. For the FT, we found it very difficult to back him and the Tories this time round because he represented and led the Brexit campaign and we were not in favour of Brexit. On the other hand... The majority sentiment was clearly not in favour of another hung parliament and stasis for another three years of what we've had. We felt, let's now have a fresh start. He's got a clear majority and something of a mandate, but we need to know what kind of Brexit he wants, what kind of trade terms with Europe and all these things we hope to shape in the future debate. Because, of course, even Boris Johnson has now banned the word Brexit from of January
1: the 31st. Civil servants are no longer allowed to use that word. They're so desperate to get that message of getting Brexit done across. But as we've often said, there's those hard choices ahead. What's the
2: new word then, Seb, if not Brexit? (laughs) The glorious
1: future, something like that. Global Britain. The people's Britain, perhaps, to channel... People's government. Something like that. So when we get to this time next year, which will be the big crunch point, is there a trade? Do we spill out on WTO terms, or do we extend? What would be your
2: gut? I'd look slightly backwards first. If you think of the thousands, tens of thousands of words spilt about, well, we're we going to crash out of the European Union. No, do- I think actually that wasn't going to happen because it serves no one's interest. They are playing a game of chicken. I think Boris Johnson's going to be much tougher in the negotiations this time round. Theresa May was very passive accommodating. I think it will be a tough negotiation. And I think probably it's going to be a bare bones trade agreement. So no tariffs, but that's not necessarily friction free access to the single market. I think they'll want to do a deal on goods, but services they'll want freedom from. So if they can't agree, they'll sort of say, we'll have a mini deal and then we'll build on that in the future.
1: And I think it will come back to this dilemma that many of our colleagues have written about, which is about fish versus financial services, that if you're looking at economic interests, you would do a deal to keep us in lockstep with the bloc's rules on financial services to protect the City of London. But in return for that, the EU will want to continue access to our fishing waters. And where is Mr Johnson's new vote? Well, it's not people in the City of London, it's people who have fishing ports.
2: Well, clearly, financial services are a lot more important than fish. But fish is politically A real stinker. But more seriously, I'm not sure whether we or the majority view in the government or indeed in the Bank of England and the Treasury is for close alignment with the European Union on financial services. Actually, I think they'd be happy to diverge.
1: I think a lot of those new Conservative MPs who've been elected for the first time are particularly concerned about goods because a lot of them come from manufacturing industries. So as you said, getting a Brexit deal on goods with zero tariffs is very straightforward, but it comes down to those non-tariff barriers and those supply chains. And of course, the litmus test for this will be Nissan in Sunderland, which is not quite represented by a Conservative MP, but that area now has a big number of them. And if that plant get into a lot of trouble, then that's tens of thousands of jobs on the
2: line there. Well, and the supply chain, as you say, around Nissan. The crucial thing is in 2020, we're going to hear a lot more about one word, and that's going to be standards, because people are talking too much in terms of tariffs. That's not the issue. You can be prevented from access to a market, not just by tariffs, but actually by standards. That's the key.
1: Yes, and of course, when Mr Johnson talked about state aid, that's just the kind of thing that Brussels negotiators are going to want the UK to stay at the same level with the EU on.
2: That and the EU, and I was there in November and I went and talked to all the key negotiators for an article I was writing about, which was somewhat personal given my career as a European correspondent based in Brussels, called Point of Departure, when essentially I was saying, we are going to leave. And it was striking how worried they were about state aid rules being breached, in effect, that Britain would also cut taxes dramatically and become sort of some offshore hedge fund.
1: Well, it's the Singapore on Thames thing that we hear so often about. Now, I mentioned Nissan, which helpfully takes us right back to the beginning of your career when you joined the FT in the mid-80s, right at the pomp of Thatcherism. And there are some strange parallels with British politics then and now. The European debate hadn't quite kicked off, but Labour was in a left-wing rut. It was getting saved by Neil Kinnock. We don't know who the Neil Kinnock of today is going to be. But when you look back on those Thatcher years, because a lot of Conservatives view it as a moment of, unadulterated triumph. Is that how you view it?
2: Well, I started my career in Scotland in 1979 on The Scotsman, and of course that matched when Margaret Thatcher came to power. She made an impact so quickly with removing foreign exchange controls and then really letting the pound rise and manufacturing got crucified. And I was the industrial correspondent, I moved to the Sunday Times, and someone said, you're like the monastery's correspondent under Henry VIII. Eighth. Because it was really being devastated. So you get through that. And then, as you say, Margaret Thatcher, 1985, 86, 87, she's in her pomp. Actually, number one, Europe is beginning to take off because of the single market. It's before the Maastricht Treaty. But there's talk of a monetary union. And Margaret Thatcher in 87 gives her Bruges speech. And the last point is the story that I made my reputation on in 1986 was the Westland affair, which essentially was Michael Heseltine building a case for you've got to help this Westland helicopter company. It should be European. We don't want to go with the Americans. And that was a proxy for the European political battle. And it cost two cabinet ministers, Leon Britton and Michael Heseltine.
1: And she went for the American option in the end, which was where her political heart lay as opposed to Europe. But of course, it was that time as well. Yes, the UK was part of forming the single market, but it was also when Jacques Delors came to the TUC conference and gave his very famous speech that said that Europe was going to be a social project. And that was when the left started to turn more pro-European and the right started to turn more Eurosceptic. There was no ever sense at that point the UK would ever think about exiting
2: the project. You're quite right. That was a very important moment when Jacques Delors did come to the TUC. There was no real talk of superstate. Everything changed in 1989-90. German unification and the price exacted for German unification was what the French and Jacques Delors called an economic and monetary union, on the one hand, balanced by a political union. Now, for... People in Britain, and particularly if one or two, they were called Eurosceptics in those days, not Brexiters. These people said it's a European superstate. Now, I never believed this. And in Maastricht, which John Major negotiated, that was a brilliant cake and eat it exercise because we didn't join the single currency. There was no common European army. We weren't in the Schengen Agreement on free movement. So it was a brilliant negotiating exercise. But... The fact is the Federalists won the argument in the long term and Masjid was seen as a sellout.
1: When you think back to that time, there was the very famous cover of the Spectator magazine which had Chancellor Cole on the front with Nicholas Ridley painting a Hitler moustache and he gave an interview that was very inflammatory and said that this whole thing is a German racket, One thing that I think is often forgotten is how sceptical Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives were about German reunification and the impact that would have on the future of Europe.
2: She tried to stop it, along with François Mitterrand. I was in Washington at the time and I covered that story in detail because I was covering national security and foreign policy in America as well as politics. And the Americans, Baker and Bush, said, no, we need German unification. In respect to Nicholas Ridley, a brilliant man, he's completely wrong. This was not a German racket. Actually, European Monetary Union and the move at Maastricht was to contain German power, to anchor a united Germany, not to increase German power. Before we
1: get to the major years, you were obviously based in Washington, D.C. for quite a long time during that, and you must have witnessed a lot of the Thatcher-Reagan relationship, which was probably the high point of the special relationship after the Second World War, What do people get wrong about the special relationship because they had a similar worldview, they were pushing similar politics, but were their strategic aims always
2: aligned? First of all, there was a remarkable personal rapport between Thatcher and Reagan. I may say that Charles Moore's third volume, which I'm reading at the moment, of the biography of Margaret Thatcher is excellent in this respect. He really captures this chemistry. Some of the people around Reagan thought, why are we giving so much space to this woman? She's dictating the tune. But she was ahead of Ronald Reagan in the overtures to Gorbachev in the Soviet Union. She anticipated that he was a person the West could do business with. At the same time, there were one or two moments of real tension after the Reykjavik summit. Reagan essentially wanted to get rid of nuclear missiles. And Margaret Thatcher was appalled as well, they were diverging views on Bush and Thatcher on German unification, as I say. She was also appalled by the invasion of Granada. But largely, it was more the world view of dealing with Russia, managing the end of the Cold War, and that the West was right and had the might. And then also, obviously, deregulation just the whole sense of. Weaken the state. If you remember Reagan's comment about seven most scary words in the English language are, I'm from the government, how can I help? Margaret Thatcher could have easily said that.
1: But then, of course, the Thatcher years turn into the major years. And I think I've heard you say a couple of times before that John Major was quite an underrated prime minister, that he won the 92 election when nobody expected him to. But also, of course, he achieved Maastricht, which you've said was cake and eat it. It was a good deal for the UK.
2: He was underrated in the sense that he had to manage a very slim majority in Parliament and therefore he was vulnerable. But he won against expectations that 92 election against Neil Kinnock. What then happened, of course, was a disaster. The explosion of the European exchange rate mechanism that we had joined, which was a fixed but adjustable exchange rate system where we thought this would tame inflation and maybe it was a prelude to joining a single currency, probably not, but we joined at the wrong rate and it exploded in 1992. And the Conservatives' reputation for solid economic policy exploded. By the way, Nigel Lawson, now a big Eurosceptic, favoured joining the ERM. just want to say that. But the crucial point was that John Major and Ken Clarke and Norman Lamont reconstituted. British economic policy. And it was a great success. And they left a great legacy for Tony Blair in 1997.
1: Indeed. And of course, when Gordon Brown eventually came in, he followed the same spending rules as Ken Clark had done over his previous couple of years as and Chancellor.
2: Probably a mistake, actually. They could have eased up a bit. They overcooked, as I remember, in 1999, 2000 on the public spending. But they were so keen to have credibility in the markets What they didn't do, I always remember this, they had a 179-seat majority. This was extraordinary. Blair crushed the Conservatives in 97, and yet they were still worried about Europe. And I can remember in a European summit in the Netherlands in 97, Alistair Campbell bounding over to me, and I'd known him when he was a Daily Mirror political editor under the Reagan-Thatcher years, and he said, what is all this Euro bollocks? (laughs) That sort of summed up where we were going.
1: But when you look at that era, obviously John Major has now come out as one of the biggest voices since in his retirement for the European cause. But then you saw this split in the Conservative Party was opening and many of the characters who were opposed to Maastricht then are the same people who led the Brexit campaign many decades later. He managed to hold it together. He kept the summit together. In that period when you moved to Brussels and was the FT's bureau chief there, how did the major government represent itself in those summits? How engaged was Britain? Because one of the things that you as sceptics have always said is Britain didn't have an influence, Britain didn't have a voice.
2: Well, this is just not true. First of all, on the security side, we were very, very important. We were influential in the Balkans conflict. Douglas Heard was then Foreign Secretary, and latterly Malcolm Rifkind. We were a serious power with a serious worldview. Second, we were always influential in trade matters where we represented the free trade wing, influencing the Germans and containing the French. Third, we were always influential on the rules around the single market. We were respected in that respect. Fourth, we backed enlargement, first to Austria, Sweden and Finland, Norway didn't make it. And then to Central and Eastern Europe, we had a massive influence there. So this is completely rewriting history. What we did have were two awkward things. One was the beef war. We had the BSE scandal. So we had a beef boycott from the EU and John Major suffered that. It was a grim period. And I think the other point was He had a slim majority, and so he looked a bit weak. I remember Helmut Kohl's national security adviser saying to me, the trouble about John Major is, and he did a sort of wavy motion with his hand, he said, he's like a skier. He's always sort of skiing around things. But of course, if you've only got a slim majority. That's what happens.
1: Before we get to the Blayers, there is one thing for the major era that we should mention about the FT, which I still hear from Conservative MPs today, which was our 1992 election endorsement. Now, this is long before you became editor, so it was not your call. But when the FT endorsed Neil Kinnock in 1992, that was a very infamous moment that's gone down in the paper's history.
2: Well, I was actually fortunately in uh, Berkeley, California on sabbatical after my tour in Washington and before going to Brussels. And I remember being asked to give a lecture at Berkeley on the coming general election. And I finished it with saying, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but I can be sure about one thing, that the Financial Times will not endorse Neil Kinnock.
1: And when people go back to read that leader, it's an extraordinary piece because it basically makes the case for John Major, except in the last paragraph, then swerves towards saying, actually, it's time for Neil Kinnock.
2: Yeah, I think maybe some mice got to uh, (laughs) attack it just before it went to print. And we were criticised very heavily. But we got through that. I think people hold that over us. And it's, you know what, it's nearly 30 years ago, please. Can we not have a statute of limitations?
1: Definitely. So we come to the Blair-Brown years and you were still in Brussels at this point before you came back as news editor of the FT. And Tony Blair came in on a very pro-European wave and he was obviously in favour of the euro and eventually Gordon Brown turned against it, advised by his then chief advisor, later shadow chancellor Ed Boers. How did you see Blair's approach to Europe? Because it strikes me when you read back, he came in on trying to take a very different approach than made ago and be fully integrated all in there with Europe, but then pressured by maybe some part of the press, some
2: part of public opinion, he became pretty Eurosceptic in some ways. Well, I see it slightly differently, Sepp. The first thing is to remember is how big Blair was in Europe at the beginning. He was seen as the young leader who got it right, how to win a huge majority, the new third way. And he just towered over all of his counterparts, because Helmut Kohl was on his way out, Jospin in Europe. I mean, Blair was the big new thing. I think that Gordon Brown had serious economic doubts about joining the single currency. I think they were right. Peter Mandelson was whispering in Tony Blair's ear saying, if you want to be a real European, you should join. Tony Blair was, you know, he's flexible, shall we say. I'm not sure he absolutely committed, but he gave the impression that he favoured it.
1: And do you think, looking back on that debate, the UK made the right decision about the euro? No question. Because at that point, obviously, there was a huge, huge debate and it's the first time Dominic Cummings, who's now the Prime Minister's chief advisor and is probably going to shape a lot of his government, entered into the national picture because he ran the Business for Sterling campaign at that moment. And what is quite interesting, there are some people, I remember our colleague Gideon Rackman was someone who was sceptical of joining the euro. But that was a point, again, the ratcheting up of euro scepticism from Maastricht in the 90s to the euro until we come to
2: Brexit. But this is fine. They were right. Business for sterling was absolutely right. And Dominic Cummings ran a brilliant campaign. But what they didn't understand was that, again, we had cake and eat it. We were the offshore trade and financial center where all the money from the eurozone, where capital flows around the single currency increased dramatically. They came to London. They didn't go to Frankfurt and to Brussels or to Paris. So we had the best of both worlds. We were out of the single currency, but took advantage of the single currency through our financial centre.
1: And I want to ask you about George W. Bush and Tony Blair, because that's a relationship you must have watched develop over a period of time there. What was it that drew those two close together? Was it Tony Blair's desire to be a statesman, because that was probably one of the more close special relationships since the Thatch and Reagan era.
2: Well, it's funny because the Brits were worried because Blair actually had a very good relationship with Bill Clinton. Politically, they were very close. And indeed, with the third way, they were third way politicians. So I think Tony Blair was very anxious to get close to George W. Bush. He saw this as the key relationship. And of course. There was a little bit of naivety. And after nine eleven, everything changed. It was fine to get close to George W. Bush and the Americans on invasion of Afghanistan and toppling the Taliban. The problem was phase two. And I remember having a talk with senior advisor to Tony Blair, and he said, you know, that's Iraq, phase two. If we invade Iraq, that's a whole thing. And the neocons drove the policy. And then when... France, Chirac and Schroeder in Germany pushed back against the neocons and against invasion of Iraq. Blair found himself, we got to choose. And he thought he could influence Bush and the debate in the UN and get a UN resolution. Of course, we failed. And this was a disaster.
1: Now, you became editor of the FT in 2005, which was around the time of Tony Blair's third and final and Labour's last election victory, we should point out as well then. And that was when the mood began to move towards Gordon Brown. He became Prime Minister in 2007. Of course, he was hit very quickly with the financial crisis, which I'm sure you would agree has been if not the one of the defining stories of your editorship at the FT there. Gordon Brown is highly lauded as the guy who saved not just the UK's economy, but a lot of the world banking system as well, but is often criticised as prime minister as not being too successful. Do you think history might be kinder to Gordon Brown because of his role in the crisis?
2: uh, There's no question that Gordon Brown played a leadership role in the global financial crisis. We were earlier to spot the flaws in the financial system and what needed to be done in terms of recapitalizing the banks, I think we were taken very seriously around the table. And we showed a leadership role with Nicolas Sarkozy. Then the Americans came in and finally dealt with their own banking problem. And the problem was the Europeans not responding. So yes, I do think that people will be kinder to Gordon Brown. And then the FT, which I guess was your first election endorsement, backed the Conservatives in 2010. Much to Gordon Brown's displeasure.
1: I'm I, sure I he was very unhappy, up. but can imagine that phone call. What was the reason that you decided that Labour had had enough at that point, that mm. it was enough, it was time for a change?
2: Actually, it wasn't a phone call. It was a conversation in person for a few weeks afterwards. But I think that we just felt that David Cameron, George Osborne represented a new kind of conservative movement, a more modern, more pro-European with a bit of scepticism. And it it was, and we just felt it was time for a change, that we'd had 13 years of Labour. And in the end, we saw that they couldn't get a majority. So I was very, very keen to have coalition government, which was a new experiment. And it largely worked quite well until, of course, In 2015, when um, under Linton Crosby, David Cameron decided to kill the coalition.
1: Indeed, I think it was William Hay who commented at that time that when they signed the coalition deal, he said to someone who was in the room, we've just signed the death warrant for the Liberal Democrats. Because They knew at that point it would destroy their reputation as this independent centre-left voice there. The coalition years are under a lot of criticism, even by Boris Johnson and the Conservatives now, because of how they handled austerity and how they handled that need to deal with the public finances following the crash. Given what we now know about where interest rates are and how the world economy has developed, do you still think austerity was the right call for the FT and for the country to support?
2: So no question in 2010, 11 and probably to a degree into 12, It was important. We were running a budget deficit of around, you know, nearly 11% of GDP. Things could have gone terribly, terribly wrong. So I think it was correct. I think, by the way, that the damage to public services really went too far. And we're really seeing the detriment to the criminal justice system, for example, local government. And I think George Osborne probably overdid it. My criticism would be partly did it to box in the Labour Party to show that the Tories were tough on spending. I think that they could have been a little bit different on their tax policy. The bigger criticism is, given that interest rates were going to remain so low for so long, they could have been bolder on infrastructure spending.
1: It's obviously easy to say that in hindsight now, because nobody knew we were going to be in this very low interest rate. Age well, some people
2: time. did say that. And <laughs> if you look at the sovereign debt crisis in Europe and monetary policy, actually, you could say that interest rates are going to be low for a long time.
1: When we came to the 2015 election, the FT's leader, which I reread recently, the last paragraph has a note of caution in it about David Cameron's Europe policy, which obviously proved to be the undoing of his whole government. And we supported again a Conservative led administration, was the phrase that we used there. When you look back at that whole renegotiation, that drama, one thing that is forgotten is that David Cameron did get a new deal. And it did include, from the European perspective, major compromises. But that was the moment at which the Eurosceptics and the now Brexiters, as they are called, outgunned expectations at every time. And when that deal came back, it was totally trashed. And that whole period, I think you'd probably agree, was just a failure of statesmanship.
2: Well, it was a mouse. And David Cameron's team didn't like what we said about that. And we predicted it was going to be a mouse. I had a pretty heated conversation with one of them on the phone one day. It just was never going to pass muster. And he should have negotiated harder. And he didn't. Do you think he could have got a much better deal than the one he got? I think he could have got a better deal. I think it should have been focused. You know, the case for hypocrisy. A lot of these other European countries, they say they've got something. They say they'll do something. We apply the rules. We gold plate. He should have been tougher on the welfare payments for immigrants. Immigration was the key. If you say we absolutely cannot have any more immigration, he should have fought harder for that. And one of the things we haven't talked about, of course, was the rise of UKIP. I think We underestimated that at the FT.
1: And when you look at the 2019 election result, the reason the Conservatives won such a big majority is because the UKIP vote, which became the Brexit party vote, all went home. You know, they essentially reunited the right, whereas the left was split between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. And that fundamentally is what drove Boris Johnson to win an 80 majority.
2: I think the Cummins-Johnson analysis in this respect was absolutely right. We didn't approve of the tactics used to get the withdrawal bill through the commons. But this notion of co-opting the Brexit lobby and the European Research Group and UKIP was the best tactic. And it worked very effectively.
1: We'll just quickly jump over the May premiership because the less said the better in, in most people's perspective.
2: It was a pretty grim period, wasn't it? Not much was achieved and we were diminished as a country.
1: And I think it was that the country known for respecting its legal institutions, its parliamentary institutions, came under much attack. And when you look back on it, there has been this slightly cathartic moment since the election that people feel Brexit is now happening, where there's been a lot of doubt throughout that three-year period. Mrs May did negotiate a deal, which is basically Boris Johnson's deal, as we know in that period. But what do you think are the lessons from that pretty dire three years since the referendum? Well,
2: one of the lessons which is not talked about enough is that the british economy performed relatively speaking remarkably well i mean given what was done to it and given the amount of uncertainty of course there's lost growth the opportunity cost of this stagnation and doing nothing and parliamentary paralysis for three years but it does say something about british economy when you talk about catharsis of course i mean if there were a crash out that would be catharsis with a cold shower The second lesson is this country doesn't work well if parties don't have majorities. The third lesson is that there wasn't a constructive opposition. Any decent opposition would have made mincemeat of the Conservatives and the fact that The Labour Party was hijacked by a radical left winger. A figure out of the 1970s does not speak well for Labour.
1: It was remarked to me by one Conservative MP that if Ed Miliband had been leading the Labour Party now, he was a flawed leader as well, but he had a much better chance of winning than Jeremy Corbyn
2: did. A better chance, but I still would say that probably Johnson Cummings would have beaten Miliband.
1: And finally, Lionel, just to look forward for what's going to happen. So we talked about the next year, which is going to be dominated in policy terms by the Brexit trade deal. But also we've got this constitutional review. We've got the social care crisis. Where do you see British politics going next? And are we entering the Johnson
2: decade? Well, it's too soon to talk about a decade. I mean, he's got five years. For me, the most important thing is what is the future of this country outside Europe? What are we going to concentrate on in terms of our relative strength? The City of London's got to be one thing, education. Further education is another. We've got to be open to the best of talent around the world. And we've also got to really address some of these deep social economic problems and inequality and, and what's happened well beyond the city-state of London, if you like. I think it would be interesting about constitutional reform. I wouldn't be against taking a look at the House of Lords, That would be profitable. But Johnson has to define what are his priorities? What kind of nation does he want? And how does it relate to the rest of the world? And are we going to be still a medium sized power that punches above its weight?
1: And of course, there's the future of the UK itself as well. And I know that one thing you're quite passionately against is Scottish independence. And that is coming right at back the agenda again. It feels like a second referendum is going to be on the cards then. The case is probably stronger than it was in 2014. But there are still big questions about will the UK exist in five years'
2: time? For me, again, if the United Kingdom splits and we become smaller, that will have an effect on how we are seen by the outside world, and it will affect our relative influence. And I also think we'd be much diminished by the loss of Scotland.
1: Lionel, thank you very much for chatting to us. That's it for this episode of FT Politics. We'll be back next week for another Christmas special interview with another departing colleague, our Whitehall editor, James Blitz. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard, and would like to see more FT journalism. And you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.